Revelation uh, 3. We're going to refer to a couple of verses from chapter 1, but we're really going to look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow where I'm going in the bulletin. It's printed there. Again, I want to say welcome. I know there are a lot of uh, family and friends visiting. It's great to have you here. Always a treat to see faces that we don't know. That brings us a lot of joy. So if we can do anything for you, let me know. Let someone know and we'll figure it out. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14. For some reason, I'm starting this sermon about Facebook. Uh, I did that last week. I don't know why it worked out that way. But I, I won't say much about this. But one of the, one of the, the kind of sub-themes that's come out of the world becoming more and more driven by social media and just that, that's how people do life and how they, they uh, process things is that uh, everyone from children to employees find themselves in trouble because they'll, they'll post something on Facebook or they'll tweet something and they'll kind of feel like they're in this special zone where only their friends and people who agree with them are operating in that zone. And, and then the reality is, you know, like their boss reads their, their posts or their supervisor reads their feeds or, you know, or, the, or the mom or dad reads the posts. And, uh, you know, it kind of felt like I'm just kind of processing and I'm saying this in front of 10 of my friends and the person that you're talking about is reading it. That's a problem, obviously. Um, Last week, we looked at the second part of Revelation 1. And if if our mental picture of Jesus is only, you know, sort of a, a lowly Jewish, handsome, but, you know, lowly Jewish peasant, um... This was a real corrective because it was a picture of the exalted Christ and his face shines like the Ancient of Days and his eyes have the divine fire. And John, who was very close to him, is terrified. So, What some people have called a vision of the cosmic Christ. And we got that last week, big time. And it's not that we don't have that as we're looking at this text. Same Jesus Christ. But... That was sorry. Are we okay? I guess we are. I'm looking at Michael like it's his fault. (laughs) Can it be your fault and not mine? Is that too much to ask? Okay. Uh, What we're looking at this this morning is is my battery going? Let's pretend that we're still in a sermon. Podcast listeners, sorry about that. Um. We're still seeing this, this risen Christ, powerful, majestic. But, but you're getting the Jesus Christ who, you could say, he reads every update and feed and post of every local church and every member. You know, all, all that to say, he knows each local church and each local church member better than, than we know ourselves. Revelation chapter 3, beginning, um, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, and then we'll go to chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. 
Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we want to do just that. We just heard the words that let the one who hears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We say to you, Spirit of God, we want to hear you, but we need a lot of help. And so through whatever distracts us, whatever is um, just wrong-headed in, in our approach to your word, uh, let us hear you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. After uh, college, I worked for a couple of years at Vanderbilt University with a campus ministry. And I met, I, I met a young man there. He was involved in the, in the ministry. And I, I don't know how else to say it, but he, he was one of those guys that I think um, someone who sends a daughter to college dreams of her bringing him home. He was so good-looking that even the guys knew he was good-looking. Just, just, one, just one of those guys, you know, you feel like... You kind of want to say, could I borrow your jaw for the weekend? I have a, you know... So I can just kind of look like that for a little bit. And he just, he just was... He just kind of had a gift of gab. He felt, kind of felt like he was a 50-something-year-old congressman in a 19-year-old young man's body. And uh, sharp and vanny student, good-looking, and just good with people, all that. And I found out during uh, this couple of years of knowing him, that, that an older man in his life, during those years, said something to him. His name was David, and I knew so many Davids, I don't think I'm, I'm giving anything away. But he, he said, David, you have got so much going for you. you. You are so bright and so handsome and so sharp and so good with people. He said, but what, what makes me nervous is you've got some real strikes against you. And the strikes are that you are so handsome and so good with people, and so sharp, and so good with your words. And I have never forgotten that. Because w- without knowing the guy, and without knowing all the context, you know what he's talking about, is that sometimes what's, you know, what's great about us, or what we think is great about us, has this sort of dark underbelly, and, and what we think is, is our great asset might be the liability that it's the thing that comes back and bites us, that it's the thing that undermines humility or putting others first. 
or thinking uh, honestly and realistically about ourselves, or even, biblically speaking, being utterly dependent on God. Because we kind of know we can do life if we've got these things, and we've got these things. Now, these, these two chapters, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, are letters to local churches. And what, here's what you're getting. You're getting Jesus in each one of these churches saying, there's things I commend about you. Well, except for the one we're reading. It's the only one with no commendation. There's things I must critique about you. But, but the pattern is this. Maybe the thing that you think is great about you is the problem. Now, how does that play out in this local church? I, rather than do seven sermons on these seven churches, I'm just going to use the last of the seven as representative of chapters 2 and 3. So here's what I want to look at. First off, why are we reading other people's mail? Which is always a good question to ask before you do that. Why are we reading other people's mail? Secondly, what is this church's problem? What's Laodicea's problem? And then what does the risen Christ say about it? How does the risen Jesus Christ address it? All right, so first off, why are we reading other people's mail? Now look, look back at what's in your bulletin first. Chapter 1, verse 10. John, who loved Jesus, was close to Jesus, connected with Jesus, sees the risen Christ, and it terrifies him, and he hears Christ's voice. And here's what Jesus says, verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia, and, and this is our focus this morning, to Laodicea. And I mentioned this last week, but if you get a map of Asia Minor, you know, modern-day Turkey, and you plot these cities, it, it makes a loop. It would be the logical route of someone who wanted to hit all seven stops in the most efficient way. And so the letters in chapters 2 and 3 follow that order, the order of, in, in verse 11 of those cities. And here's the thing to think about. Christ says, write all this down, not in multiple books. Write all this down in one book. And then take that one book on all these stops. Now think about what that means. That means that each church got its confrontation from Jesus shared with the other six churches. And it means that all of them got to read about how Jesus confronted you and your church. And it goes to all seven. All of them heard each other's, in, in a sense, dirty laundry. Why seven? Why not 57 churches? We're going to talk about this more later, and there's going to be some really interesting times to, to bring this up. But the number seven in Revelation is very significant. It always means fullness, completeness. When Jesus addresses seven churches, and then especially where at the end of every one of the letters, all of them, he says, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. What he's saying is, this applies to everyone. Any local church can learn from what I'm saying to any of these local churches. And before we go further, I want you to think about this. There's a place in the New Testament where it says that no temptation has seized you except what's common to man. 
Isn't that interesting? Sometimes when you're being tempted, you feel like you're going through something that no one else, or maybe hardly anyone else, has ever experienced. And the New Testament says, when you undergo temptation, you're undergoing stuff that everybody experiences. All your temptations are common to mankind. And so here's what that means. Before we go any further, that means that if you have the temptation, for instance, to be more obsessed with your house, its comfort, its decor, its appearance, its order, than you are about the kingdom of God. That's an old temptation. That's an ancient temptation. If you're tempted, if you have children, to obsess about your children more than the greater needs of the community, even the the needs of the community of your own local church, that is an old temptation. The risen Christ is saying everyone needs to hear the struggles of these churches because they're everyone's struggles. All right, so what are the struggles of Laodicea? What's going on with them? Now, there's, there, I don't normally get this, this um, um, I don't know, teachy, but, but there, there was a, a New Testament scholar, mid to latter 20th century, by the name of Colin Hamer. I think I'm saying it correctly. H-E-M-E-R. Colin Hamer. And every single commentary that I looked at about the seven letters to the churches referred to this guy. Colin Hamer did his doctoral work, his dissertation on the cities that are mentioned in these letters, the stops of this book. And what he did was he dug into everything he could find that's recorded in ancient history or ancient writers about what these cities were like. And the more research he did, he began to see that these things that Jesus is saying, or these things that Jesus are saying, are not random. He's not being provocative or just pulling an image out of the hat He's saying things that are very uh, location-specific. And we're really indebted to his work because every commentary has built on this. Now, what did he find out about the history of Laodicea? Here's what he found out. Laodicea was famous in the first century for several things. First off, it was loaded. It was so loaded that when there was an earthquake that devastated and affected a lot of cities in that region, one of the only places that did not say, we need help from Rome, we need financial assistance, was Laodicea. It was so financially solvent. Okay, that first thing. Second thing, in that region there was a certain kind of wool that was cultivated for high-end clothing. Some people think it was a sort of a black wool. High-end wool for high-end clothing third thing it was known for, that it was proud of. There's one, there's one other that it's not proud of. The third thing it was proud of, it had a med school. Laodicea had a medical school, and the guy that founded it studied under a doctor who was known for his research on the health of the eye. And some historians believe that in Laodicea, and maybe even in this med school, that there was an eye salve that was developed in that region. Now, they were proud of those things. But there was one other thing that Laodicea was known for that you wouldn't be proud of. Um, One city about, you know, five to ten miles away 
called Hierapolis had great hot springs. And people went to Hierapolis for the hot springs like they go to hot springs here in the United States. Great hot water. Another city was Colossae. The New Testament book of Colossians is written to Christians in that city, very close to Laodicea. It had great cold water, but the water in Laodicea was crummy. They had to pipe it in from another source, and by the time it got there, it was kind of rivery and sludgy and lukewarm. It wasn't hot or cold, and apparently it was the experience of people who had not, like, cultivated a taste for it. If they came through Laodicea, if they drank the water, it wasn't uncommon for them to, guess what, spew it out of their mouths. Now, that's remarkable. And Jesus comes to a church in this region and he says, you know what? I know that you feel that you're rich, but you're poor. And I know that you've got the goods when it comes to high-end clothing, but you are naked. I know that you have the goods when somebody has eye trouble, you're blind. And if you want the real gist of of the confrontation, it's verse 17. What does he say? You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. By the way, some historians think that when they refused financial help from Rome, that a slogan of the city was, I need nothing, or I have no need of nothing. And Jesus comes, perhaps, and adopts that and says, and that is the problem. Look at this. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Now, this, I have thought and thought about how to say this without it being just grammatically tortured, but I don't know how else to ask this, and I don't want to ask this insulting our intelligence, but just think about this. If there's something that a local church doesn't realize about itself, does it realize that? No. By the very nature of the case, if there's something about a local church that it doesn't realize about itself, does it realize that it doesn't realize that? It can't. You know, it's like the question about, if you were deceived, would you know it? No. That's why you're deceived. These folks thought they were okay. They thought, look, we believe in Jesus. Maybe they're second-generation believers. Maybe their parents or grandparents really had a powerful encounter with the gospel in a sense that the gospel transformed their lives. And maybe these are the children living in an affluent city on autopilot. And Christ comes and says, there's things about you that I know that you don't realize about yourself And of course, as I'm looking at at this, I'm thinking about downtown Presbyterian as a church. What might we not realize about ourselves? Now, that makes me nervous to speculate. Because if I don't realize it, then I don't realize it, right? Let let, let me throw out just one thing just to kind of prime the pump. it's, It's the Spirit of God that has to make us connect the dots on this. But I thought about, okay, all right, if, if what Laodiceans were proud of, if the kind of thing that visitors would come and say, man, I wish my city had money. I wish we had a med school. 
and my eyes hurt. You know, and I always have to order this stuff from a day. I wish I just had it down the street. I, I like Laodicea, and that's what they were proud of. And Jesus is using that to say, yeah, and that's your problem. I thought about, all right, what, when I've heard compliments about downtown Presbyterian, what have I heard? And now, for good or for ill, I've lost count of how many times I've heard this. Uh, hey, I've visited your church. Y'all have got a lot of great young families. And you've got a lot of sharp people. And you are a sharp-looking bunch. I stand up here and look at you. You are a sharp-looking bunch. Now, is that wrong? No. Are we encouraged to see young or old or middle-aged? Absolutely. But I thought about something that um, Paul says in one of his letters. And he writes to the Corinthians. He says, For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I'll tell you, I feel torn when I read that. I feel torn because on the one hand, I, I, I think, man, I thank God for, just, we thank God for anybody, you know, that, that'll have us, <laughs> that, that would want to visit or be a part of the church. But I thought, man, when I think about people who are sharp, I don't think the lowly, the uneducated, the despised, the debased of this world, And Paul says to the Corinthians, that's the population through whom God builds the church around the world. And Christian history right now would bear that out. What does that mean for us? I don't know what that means for us. But, I mean, maybe that's just a little taste for us to get on our knees and ask, what is it that maybe we think is great about us that at some level, because of our hearts, could hinder gospel ministry. Well, what do you, what do you mean? What, do you, what should we change? I, I don't exactly know. But humility is to come with open hands and to say, I don't realize what I don't realize about me individually or about us as a local church. But that's never a bad idea to pray that. Now, if that's the context of Laodicea, what does the risen, how does the risen Christ address it. Okay, here's what he does with every letter, but then specifically, what does he do with Laodicea? I don't want to use the word template, but there almost is a template to how he responds to all seven churches. First, he says, here's who I am. He names himself. He uses different names with different churches. And then he says, I know you. Now, that's not all commendation nor is it all critique. He says, as the mixed bag that that you are, I know you. I know you better than you know yourselves. And then he addresses what he commends. And he addresses what he critiques. And then he exhorts each church, I want you to do such and such. And then he offers them lavish things. And then it always ends by saying, he who has an ear... 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's with all the letters. What does he say to the Laodiceans? How does he name himself at the beginning? Well, look in verse 14. It says, now write this. to the That's the messenger of the church in Laodicea. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. What does that mean? To us, Amen is sort of the caboose at the end of the prayer. But amen, especially to an Hebrew audience, meant truth. There's a verse in Isaiah 65 where if you read it in the English Bible, God calls himself twice the God of truth, the God of truth. But in Hebrew, it says the God of amen, the God of amen. When Jesus was on earth and he would be teaching... Typically, amen was not at the end. He would say, when he's about to, you know, underscore, italicize, highlight, what I'm about to say is important. He would say, truly, truly, I say to you. That's how we translate it in English. In Greek, amen, amen, I say to you. It means that if you want utter objectivity and honesty and a realistic take on life, there, there is an amen set of lenses that God can give you. And when you look at life through those lenses, you see what's real. And Jesus says, I am the amen. And I'm the faithful and true witness. And we said in the very first talk in this series, that thing about witness and testimony and testify is huge with John. And what he's saying is this, I'm the amen, I'm the the witness. He's saying, listen, Laodiceans, I will be honest with you. I will tell you the truth. And as we've said many times in here, you would think that the easiest person to understand would be yourself. And we're the hardest person. (laughs) It's It's hardest for us to understand ourselves than anyone else because we lack objectivity. And he's saying, I will give it to you. I'm the beginning of creation. Did that mean the Son of God was created? No. Or He wouldn't be God. God's the Creator. It means that when I rose from the dead, that was the money in the bank that the new creation is coming. I am am the walking embodiment and proof that the new creation is coming, is that God can go to what's dead and fallen and raise it to life and change it so that it's vibrant and good and pleases Him, which is what the Laodiceans need in their lives. So He's honest with them and He confronts them and it's painful to hear. You know, I thought about that episode of Seinfeld that everybody's seen where Elaine, who thinks she's an awesome dancer, finds out that she's a horrible dancer. In fact, it's finally captured on film, you know, and she, just, she doesn't want to hear the bad news. And, and there's a confrontation that, no, you've been horrible this whole time. Your dancing is repulsive. It offends people. Well, I mean, you know, that's funny to watch. This is the risen Christ going to a church that, that's, you know, looking at a pagan culture, kind of going, yeah, I mean, this is good. We're a church in a pagan culture. And Christ is saying, you are naked and poor and wretched. <laughs> And you can't see. I pity you. Amen. Hard to hear. But he doesn't just do that. And This came through to me more than I've ever seen it. 
To whom does Jesus speak in reproof and discipline? To his enemies? What does he say? I reprove and discipline people whom I, what? Love. And we've got to see this, is that he's not just coming going, oh, you think you have such great wool? How about this? You're naked. Take that. You think you've got great eye medicine? You're blind. You think you're so rich and solvent? You're bankrupt. There. Is that all he says? No, he says, look, Come to me and buy gold and you'll be rich. Of course, you should say, well, if I'm so poor, according to you, how could I buy gold? Well, I would have to give you a currency called grace that you could not earn. I would give you the currency and you could buy my gold and be rich. That sounds like Isaiah where God says, come to me without money, And buy wine and milk, come buy rich food and be satisfied without money. And I'm sure the Israelites were saying, how do I come and buy if I don't have any money? Exactly. I would have to give you the currency, which would be my grace, my undeserved, unearned favor. And you could buy whatever you wanted and be satisfied for a change. Y'all are broke. Come buy gold. You can't see I'll give you salve for your eyes and they'll get better and you can see. You're naked. Let me put my white clothes on you. Your shame will be covered. And this, this one just gets me. I am outside knocking. And many, 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 many a Christian preacher has used verse 20 of Revelation 3 as an evangelism passage. Jesus is knocking at your door. Are you going to let him in for the first time? He wrote this to a church. He wrote it to people that he says he already loves and who are already called by his name in his church. He says, it's to you that I'm coming. You think, man, why would you want to spend time with people who love their stuff more than they love you. And there he is outside the door. Doorknobs on the inside. Um, Song of Solomon. The, the beloved, the woman, says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. And then here's the voice of the, of the lover, the man. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Is this cosmic Christ so good that he would knock on the door of worldly, self-satisfied, lukewarm people and say, let me in, not to lecture you. Let me in and I will sit down with you and you'll eat with me, and I'll eat with you, and we'll love each other. Because that's unbelievable. And then he says what he says over and over to the churches. Repent. 
Repent. And we define this all the time, but let's define it again. What is it to repent? It's to turn from what you're proud of about yourself, and that's so relevant in this passage, and turn from the things you're ashamed of about yourself, like, oh, yucky, known, embarrassing sin. Turn from it. But yeah, turn from this stuff that I'm proud, I'm proud about, that I think is pretty great about me. Turn from both and turn to Him and say, have mercy on me. And He likens it to, be zealous, get up, and open the door and I'll come into you. You want gold? I've got it. You want to see? I can accomplish it. Every local church repents as its local church members each repents. And, and, you know, all of us could tell our tales about how we're lukewarm. I could tell mine and you could tell yours. What is the answer? And this is amazing. Jesus is telling us exactly what it is. The answer to Christian lukewarmness is to repent and open the door to Him. Let me say this as as we come in for a landing here. If you are a Christian, and even as you're hearing this, you know, you're saying, "I, I know I'm lukewarm. I know I'm apathetic toward worship and His Word, toward telling people about Him, toward making some hard changes I need to make. I know I'm lukewarm. But I don't know how to... He's, he's physically not here. Of course, if He knocked on my door, I'd open it. But He's in heaven. I don't know how to open the door. Two things. Number one, we need His Word. We need it preached. But we need to say it to one another. We who are blessed with our own copies of it, we've got to open it. If you want to abide with Him and in Him, we've got to abide in His Word. We need the Bible to read it and meditate on it and chew on it and eat it and share it with one another and bat it around until we hear Him. And that really leads to the next thing is that We need His people. You cannot open the door to Christ and shut the door on His people. Before the Apostle Paul became a Christian, Jesus said to him, not, why are you persecuting Christians? He said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identified with His people, He calls His people me. This means things like, lunches and breakfasts together and checking in with each other on the phone. It means community groups. It means hospitality. It means commitment to worship. But I'm telling you, if you're sitting here and maybe you're a man in his 40s and you know that you're lukewarm, if you were to call a Christian man you know and say, I want to have breakfast this week and I want you to ask me some hard questions, you will feel different at the end of that breakfast. And I don't mean you'll feel worse necessarily, but you may not feel better. But you'll have a felt sense that, man, I think the Lord is speaking through him into my life. Let me end with this. Um, A few months ago, I got a car repair done, and uh, I got a call from the the, um, shop that did it, and I got a voicemail, and the guy said, Hey, Brian, this is so-and-so. One of our workers thinks that he left a pry bar 
in your car. And not like in the passenger part, but up under the hood. So would you, would you check and, and see? So uh, that afternoon I went out and looked at it. Nope, no, no pry bar. Now this is like a giant metal rod with a screwdriver handle on it. It's, it's a major tool. Of, co- of course I'd see it, right? Look, nope, no pry bar. But I, you know, admitting this, I, I didn't call him back. You know, I just failed to call him back. I was rude. I was rude. I say it publicly. So uh, a few weeks later, I'm out throwing the ball with the kids, and um, this guy, pull, the guy that left the voicemail, pulls up in his pickup truck at my house. And I thought, man, a house call. Wait, why is he here? And uh, he got out and said, hey, man, how you doing? I said, fine, throwing the ball with the, with, the, with the kids. And he said, look, did you get that message about that pry bar? And I said, yeah, I looked under the hood, and I didn't see it. And then I said, but if you want to, you can take a look. This was the operative phrase. You've got a trained eye. So we opened up the hood, and, and he went, now my kids can vouch for this because they were there. He went, hmm, shing, and pulled out a metal rod like that big. And I thought, okay, number one, I looked, never saw that. Number two, how did that not rattle and clang as I drove around for the last month? His eye went right to it. It was, it was there the whole time. Okay, now picture this. Picture if that guy was my boss, I'm not a customer, but picture that he's my boss. What if he did that, and I'm feeling so stupid and so incompetent, and if he were to say, look, if you'll keep coming to me, one of these days I'll make you a partner. Wouldn't you feel like, man, I'm glad that guy likes me. And man, I want to keep working for him. And I'm sure this analogy breaks down in a thousand different places. But it's, it's the person who knows that you didn't know what you're doing and comes to you and says, hey, look, anything you need, come to me and I'll help you. I'll give you what you don't have. That's a picture of Christ. And, and he is saying to downtown Presbyterian this morning, if we are proud of ourselves about anything except boasting in the name of Jesus, anything besides that, be zealous and repent and open the door for me and I will come in and I will eat with you and I'll give you whatever you need and you will be rich. You want to be important? Don't be a big shot in your city. Come sit on my Father's throne with me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Take your word, drive it deep into our hearts, not only as individuals, but as a church called Downtown Presbyterian. Please grant us repentance from heaven. If there's anyone here who has never repented for the first time, who is not yet a Christian, would you give them that turning to you? Would you grant them the ability to turn to you from the things they're ashamed of and the things they're proud of and to say, have mercy on me that they might see you. We pray this in your name. Amen.